Today, I am so excited to bring on the show a woman that I met in June of 2019 at the Girl Live event in Las Vegas. She is a one of a kind, absolutely phenomenal woman. And from the very second that we met and started to talk, it was clear that we were kindred spirits, that we had so much in common and that our approach to self-defense and teaching women and to life in general was just absolutely in harmony. We really hit it off and clicked. And I have been so looking forward to bringing her on the show. She is an absolutely incredible woman with amazing insights and a really cool approach to martial arts, self-defense, and teaching women how to be safe. Plus, she is an absolute kick-ass musician, and she talks a little bit about that too. You are going to absolutely love this one. Let's dive in to my interview with Sally Rose Monis. Welcome to the Born to be a Badass podcast, the show that tackles the subject of women and violence head on and shines the light on what women need to know and do to be safe. Here's your host, fourth degree black belt and self-protection expert, Cynthia Jolicoeur-Rude. Welcome to the Born to be a Badass podcast. I'm your host, Cynthia Jolicoeur-Rude, and today I am super, super excited to bring on the show a woman that I met last summer and instantly connected with. Sally Rose Monis is the head instructor and co-founder of Fight Like a Girl Club. She has more than eight years of martial arts training and holds a first-degree black belt at the Blue Dragon Dojang, and she's training for her second degree. She's a competitive fighter in Odoquan, a two-time grand champion at the Mid-Atlantic All-Female Karate Open in 2017 and 2018, with first place in both forms and sparring. She has a background in American boxing and Korean karate, and she is an intersectional feminist, activist, musician, and performer with two bands, Shagwoof and the Sally Rose Band. The Fight Like a Girl Club has an incredible mission, which is to empower people with the ability to protect their physical and emotional well-being through female-driven self-defense education. Welcome to the show, Sally Rose. Hello. Thank you for having me. I am so excited that you are here because I think when we first met at the Girl Live event, it was pretty clear that you and I had an instantaneous connection, and that we were destined to have lots and lots and lots to talk about. So I'm super excited that I get to ask you tons of questions today. I am so excited. It absolutely felt like serendipity meeting you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I like to start the show with some questions so people can get to know you before we dive into the nitty gritty stuff. Are you ready for that? Absolutely. All righty. If you were a musical instrument, what would you be? Oh, my goodness. Well, seeing as I play guitar and bass and use my voice, those would be natural answers. But I think that I would be um, some kind of a drum, like a big, tight skin pulled drum with a big, big body. (laughs) Wow. So, like one that is like the kettlebell type thing or one that you hold... In your hand and bang. Um, 
I think they're called tempanies, those really, really big drums that have that kind of slow build sound that are like, they're like really, um, it's like a, a, a box that fills a whole room up and they just kind of fascinate me. So what is it about them that really draws you in? Um, I am five foot one and I have a petite build, but I'm, um, have my dad's muscles. <laughs> and I think I'm really attracted to things that make a lot of boom out of not a massive body. That's kind of something that's always resonated with me. So a lot of bang for the buck. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's great. What has been the most unexpected or fulfilling part of touring with a band? Well, um, I grew up in a pretty low-income family, so um, I was kind of an expert at, at the not-so-glamorous parts of touring from the get-go just because things like camping or sleeping in weird places or learning how to be creative with not very much cash to feed and fuel your body um, are things that I was already pretty, you know, <laughs> comfortable with growing up. So those things have always been kind of fun, finding ways to be creative to make yourself feel like you're, you know, like giving yourself the nutrients and proteins that it needs to endure being on the road and driving six to nine hours every day and um, being in a tight space with, you know, a bunch of stinky boys. But most fulfilling is absolutely always anytime we get to play for a new room that's filled with bodies that we've never seen before um, and making people dance, making people feel good in their skin. And, you know, it's kind of like a, a weird form of falling in love with a new group of strangers every night. That's really cool. I've always been very curious about what life on the road was like, and you just captured both sides of the coin, I think. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, a lot of people, a lot of my friends are, are musicians and they, they tour a lot. And, and unless you're making a lot of money, which it, it, it's few and far between, and it takes a long time to get to that point, if anybody gets to that point, um, there's like an understanding that it looks and sounds a lot more glamorous than it is. But I think it's really cool to get to experience both of those dualities on the road it's like you know you're sleeping on a friend's floor that has beer cans on it and it smells bad and you're eating terribly because the venues are feeding you pizza almost every night and that's part of your payment but then you also like have a green room with like a mini fridge and and people want you to like sign things for them and um so it really is a, an interesting juxtaposition between feeling like a Rock star sometimes, and then also feeling like a traveling hobo. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I guess this kind of dovetails in with that. Like, what is your favorite self care practice? Well, something that I never, ever, ever get enough of is sleep, um, and that is, I think, probably the most affordable and most expensive form of self care um, is catching up on sleep. You know, I, I work a full time job and run a nonprofit and I um, manage the two bands and on top of my regular training at the academy. Um, so I don't get a lot of sleep and that to me is, is the most valuable form of self-care. Um, training also is, is a really 
wonderful form of self-care for me time, but um, more than going to a spa or getting a massage or, you know, treating myself to a certain like kind of diet or eating or something like that, sleep is hands down the one thing that, that makes me feel like I love myself. <laughs> yeah, I can relate to that too. It seems like it should be such an easy thing to take care of, and yet it is sometimes the hardest thing. It's the thing that gets sacrificed the most so that you can do all the other things. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's one of those things I feel like you can probably relate to this. It's like I always trick myself in, in thinking like, oh, things will settle down after I do this project or things will settle down after I, I do this workshop or seminar. And I get fixated on thinking there aren't enough hours in the day. But if I'm honest with myself, if I had more hours in the day, I would fill them with other workshops and seminars. <laughs> so it's uh, it's just that, that thing where that truly is self-care. It's on me to make that time for myself to get, you know, an extra 45 minute nap. Like even if that's all I can squeeze in, it, it makes a big difference. Yeah. What advice would you give young women today that you wish that you'd had when you were in your twenties? Oh my goodness. Um, there's so many things I wish I, I could tell myself when I was in my early twenties. Um, I think the most important thing and something that has made me really, really, you know, it's, it's the nonprofit is so important to me and the work that we do is so important to me. But I think the lesson that we try to instill in young women that I still practice every day and could work on more and more every day is not just learning physical self-defense, but, um, and not just learning awareness, but there's this really weird area that we don't talk about as a society, um, which is learning verbal self-defense. And it's like, you know, we're told when we're girls, you know, not to say no, not to hit, not to fight back, you know, just to kind of like endure discomfort. And those things are starting to shift and change, which is wonderful. And we have a lot of work to do there, but there is change starting to happen. The thing that I don't see enough of is learning how to set up verbal self-defense so that when you're in a situation, you can de-escalate it and learn how to set up those boundaries so that you can say, when you blank, I feel blank, please don't do it again. Or learning to use your voice and say, you're making me uncomfortable, which is honestly harder than most levels of physical self-defense for me. And I wish that young women can grow up and inspire each other to set up those boundaries so that it becomes the new cultural norm to be able to use your voice and say, I'm uncomfortable when you do that. You need to stop instead of it getting to the point where we need to hit them or take them in the groin. And I think that that's something that I really missed growing up was learning how to set up verbal boundaries. No, oh, that's, that's huge. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you that, Many, many women just don't speak up when they're starting to get uncomfortable and the people mm -hmm. that they're dealing with sort of take silence to be consent. And then Absolutely. the situation gets worse and worse and worse. And finally, the woman says, well, I have to do something. And by that time, there have been so many opportunities missed to deal with it in a, in a different way. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, it's so true. That's great advice. 
I would like to dive into your story. So could you start by just talking about a little bit of your history, your growing up background, and sort of how you experienced life and how that led you into martial arts and self-defense? Absolutely. Um, So uh, my parents got a divorce when I was about three and a half. Um, I was definitely an accident on my my dad's 45th birthday, I think. So it was kind of a... um, Nowadays, it's not unique, but but then it was pretty unique um, because my dad mostly did the raising of my sister and I. So it was it was interesting because you know my dad was like my absolute idol growing up, and um, you know he's a, a functional alcoholic and you know lived an absolutely wild life in the sixties and seventies as a rebel and. Um, so it was a really interesting dynamic kind of learning what to be inspired by and also learning from his mistakes. Um, but one thing that he always, you know, gave to us as young girls was how to be tough and how to take a hit and how to get back up when things got rough. And I, you know, will always look up to my dad for that. So he, he kind of taught us to be scrappy when we were younger. We used to wrestle with my dad and stuff, and um, he definitely instilled the fighter in me at a very young age. So I was always interested in, you know, like boxing and um, mixed martial arts. And fast forward, you know, you know, I, I started becoming a young woman, and um, just as every woman has experienced um, situations that made them uncomfortable or feel unsafe or feel threatened, There were several situations that I really, truly am grateful to be alive post those situations. Um, One in which that it took me weeks to even process what had happened. And it just hit me like a ton of bricks that I, I could never, ever let that happen again. And if I wanted to pick the pieces of myself back together to become whole and strong and make myself fearless and, you know, unwavering, I would have to learn some form of self-defense. And so I found my sensei who is absolutely incredible. He's very traditional, very hard style. You know, we, we train to kill and use the self-control to decide not to. Um, it's very real life uh, skills and techniques that we learn. And it's been, you know, many years since those incidents happened. And it's really interesting being, you know, that many years older and having the skills and knowledge that I do now. I've been in multiple situations since then where someone has assaulted me or attacked me. I've had people. Um, come up behind me in a bar and choke me from the front. I've had people pick me up and put me in a rear neck chokehold from behind. I've had people who really didn't want me to get back up. And now when those situations have happened, it's easy for me to talk about and share that experience with other women because I went into go mode and I've built up muscle memory to react and not shut down, which I think is the most important thing that you can learn in self-defense, which is 
part of the reason why your uh, seminar spoke to me so much is you specifically made such a point about we're not here to learn techniques. We are here to learn how to react. And that is something that I really, you know, identify with that so much. It's a huge part of my work is training people how to react and not just shut down. And um, it's become every bit as much of who I am as, you know, my identity as a woman, my identity as a musician, my identity with my family, my martial arts has become such a big part of who I am. And in all honesty, I've been able to find gratitude for those experiences I had when I was younger because I would not be the person I am today and I would not be the fighter I am today and I would not be able to share what I know with other women if it wasn't for that experience. Yeah, that's really powerful. And I can totally get what you're saying about how repeated real life experience has given you what Tony Blower calls mental blueprints for situations. Mm. And so that mm-hmm. you know, when you're in another situation, your brain can instantly recognize, ah, I know this and I know what to do. And Absolutely. Yeah, so I, I totally get that. And one of the other things that you spoke to was basically fear management. You've mm-hmm. learned how to navigate through fear and get out of that fear loop and into action really quickly. And I think that's another absolutely essential piece of self-defense training that women have got to get. It's so true. And I mean, it's it's really counterintuitive and it's so much easier said, you know, when somebody tells you, if you are in a dangerous situation or if your instinct is telling you, you know, is, is setting off alarms, the most important thing to do is to try and stay calm. And it's like, that's, it's, it's so easy. Easy isn't even the right word, but it is so natural to shut down. And because if you don't know any better, that is another form of self-defense. It's a form of coping. It's a form of going, I don't want to remember this, so I'm going to shut down. And, you know, if we can train young women at an earlier age to trust that instinct and to try to breathe through it and just react, then I feel like we could save so many more women from traumatic situations. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm really curious about, you mentioned that your sensei is very hard style, and I'm curious if you could share a little bit about your training and then talk a little bit about why you got into competing. Yeah, my uh, my sensei is uh, Sensei Joshua Copson with Blue Dragon Dijong. He is also my co-founder with Fight Like a Girl Club. Um, he is the fall guy. So he, he um, takes all the beating for me and for all my ladies. He is very much um, old school in his training and his philosophies as a martial artist. I think that you and I talked about this a little bit in Vegas, actually, that there are, this is not the nicest way to say it, but there's a lot of mixed dojos, um, especially in the U.S., pop-up martial arts academies that just kind of crank out black belts in like a one or two year program and they kind of strip all of the tradition away from it and they strip a lot of the real life combat use and ideologies from training people Um, and it's more just kind of like a diploma mill instead of training people to be actual 
fighters and warriors. And so, I mean, there is no guarantee in our academy. There's no guarantee that you're going to get any promotion at any point. You could be a yellow stripe for six years. Um, nobody is advanced until they have demonstrated and proven that they've actually learned and absorbed all of those techniques and skills. And it's just kind of a unique, I mean, he, he does insane things. My sensei, you know, he's still, we, we break bricks instead of boards still. And um, the, really the only reason that we compete is just for the pure fact that it's good to be in uncomfortable situations where you have to fight somebody that you don't already know. Competitions are not why I train. Um, it has nothing to do with why I love martial arts. Our martial arts is Korean karate, but it is all based on self-defense, and it's not an offensive sport. So the competition is really not um, like the pride and joy of what we do, but it is, it is important because when you're in the academy for so many years and you get used to, you know, tapping knucks with the same people, you know, every day, you start to learn their body and their mind and, and what their go-to moves are. And so it becomes more of a dance than having the adrenaline and real nerves of like, oh my gosh, I don't know how to fight this person and I don't know what they're going to throw at me. Um, so competition alone is just for the nerves. I mean, I still, I, I do really well at tournaments and I still feel like I am going to throw up <laughs> every time. It makes me so nervous. It's like a set of nerves that I don't ever get as a performer. Um, I, my palms get sweaty. I get so anxious, but it's, that's exactly what you were talking about. Those mental blueprints. It's, it's being able to rein that fear in and breathe through it and be like, okay, I need to stay calm and use all of my knowledge and skills right now. And the beauty of it is nobody's trying to really, really hurt each other, but you know, it's going in and saying, I might get hurt, I might lose, but I'm going to learn how to calm myself and do the best that I can. So for that reason, um, the competitions are important, but mostly it's just what, what drew me to Odukwan was how traditional it was and how much it honored our ancestors and the real-life application. Yeah, that's great. I'm sitting here just nodding my head. So I hope nobody's actually watching me through the through the glass here because I'm like, yes, yes, yes. I totally, totally get it and can really relate to what you're saying. And this idea of going into competitions and putting yourself in a very uncomfortable spot and mm -hmm. getting adrenalized and having to actually perform in an adrenalized state is great because it it's one of the things where when you're training self-defense, like you can't go out and actually practice right. with real life violent encounters. So right. you want to get as close as you can and doing this kind of competitive stuff, even though it is completely different because it's got rules and referees and moves that you mm -hmm. can't use. It still allows you to experience that fear loop that you were describing and navigate through that and then actually have to perform in an adrenalized state. And that is so different as you were saying, it's from so being different. in your school where you know everybody and you, it, there's nothing that stresses you out. Right, exactly. I mean, I, you know, like the fifth degree black belts mess with me and I'll get like beat up a little bit when they gang, gang up on me in the academy. But I know 
that it's, it's, it's people that I trust and it's a safe space. And in a tournament, I mean, there have been some pretty nasty bouts and there's been years where I was the only woman in my division. So I begged and pleaded with the judges to compete in the men's division because, you know, I'm driving all the way to Baltimore or to Nova and I've paid fees and I've been training for nine months straight to compete in this tournament and damned if I'm not going to compete and have that experience. And it's like, you know, I don't want to be doing it, but at the same time, I recognize how much it serves me to put myself in that uncomfortable situation and have to breathe through it. And that's just like you said, totally, you know, invaluable. It's like, I, I, I'm not going to just go into the street and attack somebody (laughs) and be like, okay, now you attack me. Like it doesn't work like that. So that, that is purely, you know, the reason that we do the, the competitions. Now, have you also done competitive fights? Yes. Yeah. It's, uh, you mean other than martial arts? Yeah. As opposed to just going to a tournament. Um, yes, but I've actually, it's, it's really interesting. So my, my main issue with mixed martial arts, not as far as training, because it's a wonderful outlet for training. There's a lot, you know, like, Muay Thai and Jiu-Jitsu are absolutely wonderful styles. All styles have pros and cons. But my main issue with competitive mixed martial arts is that it takes away all of the art form. It's all martial and no art. And although I think that it is the closest to a real-life fight that you can put yourself in, the thing that is really, really hard for me to swallow with it is that you have to really, really, really want to hurt somebody. And that is just something that I, I have a really hard time with. You know, it's like as soon as you go into a cage fight, you have to really strip away any ounce of empathy that you have and say, I want to break their nose. And as much as it is valuable that it's as close to a real fight as, as you can get, I just can't, um, I thought about, you know, there's a lot of trainers around here who've tried to scoop me up for, um, MMA fights and I've dabbled in it, but it's just, it's, it's a philosophy that I really struggle with. You know, it's like, I love watching MMA fights for, for sport on TV, but there's no part of me that, is capable of stripping all of my empathy to really want to hurt someone that bad. I just can't, I can't seem to, to come around to it. And, you know, I, I've, I've definitely been on the fence and off the fence and I've talked to my sensei about it and he's blessed me to do it. And the trainers that have tried to pick me up, you know, I still talk to them every once in a while, but it's just, it's like not even so much the fear of getting, the pulse beat out of me because that's like something that I um, am oddly way more comfortable with. But the thought of just having to beat somebody to submission until somebody is pulling me off of them is like goes against everything that I train for. So it's, it's a weird, it's a weird thing. It's, um, it's beautiful to watch. I just can't, I can't bring myself to do it anymore. Well, that makes complete sense to me. And I think it's because it's a sport environment. So I think if you were Mm -hmm. in another 
life and death sort of situation and you had to beat somebody to a pulp in order to get to safety or you had to break their nose or you had to break their neck or something like that, you would do it without hesitation because that would be a real life situation. But it's completely different when it's sport. Yes, 100%. I mean, and that's, it's, it's really hard to explain that to people on the outside who have seen me fight and they know about my background and they know about the work that I do and they're like, you need to, you know, get involved in these MMA fights. And I'm like, yes, like there's a weird part of my like competitive side that thinks that it would be fun, but I just can't bring myself to want to do that. I, it, it, there's, it's like that quote from Fight Club where the guy is like said that he wanted to make something, he wanted to destroy, destroy something beautiful, which to me, it's just like, Every single foundation of why I train and why I found martial arts and why I teach other people self-defense is just out of that. It's because I want people to be able to defend themselves. And the thought of being pure offense in a sport environment is such a turnoff for me. Well, let's, let's play off of that because one of my questions for you is how do you see martial arts as different from self-defense? Ah, beautiful question. The most um, simple answer, um, and we talk about this at, at the beginning of most of our workshops, is because often we'll have people in the workshops who are just learning everything naturally. They're picking things up really quickly and they're totally in love with it. And they're like, I want to come to more of these. And it's like, you might actually want to consider joining the academy because what you're looking for is probably different than what we're going to provide you here. Martial arts in our traditional style is learning technique in the purest form so that you can do as minimal damage as possible with, with great technique. Whereas with self-defense, it's the total opposite. It's giving somebody tools without any background and just showing them pure, simple, efficient, effective techniques to get the most damage possible. So with martial arts, it's, it's based around this whole build your skills up and you put years and time and training into being able to have self-control over any, you know, defense or attack that you put on someone. Whereas with self-defense, it's just like you said earlier, most, most bang for your buck, it's if someone is attacking me, I'm going to put them on the ground and I don't want them to get up and I'm going to get out and get help. Whereas with my martial arts, when somebody comes up to me in the bar and grabs me, I will put them in a wrist lock and put them down on the ground and I will talk to them about manners. But the self-defense instructor in me is going to show women how to hit someone in the groin, take their knee out and run away. Totally different mostly being minimal damage versus maximum damage with, you know, skill set. Yeah, that's a great distinction. This episode is brought to you by Damsel in Defense. Damsel in Defense creates products that allow you to enhance your safety through items that you either carry on your person or in one of your bags or purses, or the things that you can keep in your home or in your car. Damsel is also involved in fighting human trafficking by creating damsel houses. Currently, there are two, one in Cambodia and one in India. 
where girls are rescued from sex trafficking. They are given housing and shelter and help to form a plan to build new lives so they no longer have to sell their bodies. The goal for Damsel is to have a home in every country that their partner organization, which is called Destiny Rescue, is rescuing in. I became a Damsel rep not because I really wanted to sell self-defense products, but because so many of my clients wanted to buy them. And I wanted to A, give them a good vehicle to buy products that I knew were good quality products that are workable, and B, because I wanted to be able to provide them with the training that they need to actually learn how to use these products and have a realistic understanding of when they can and cannot be helpful. So I became a Damsel in Defense Pro, and if you're interested in checking out their products, which cover a wide variety of things, everything from stun guns and pepper sprays to coubitons and other striking tools and tactical pens with flashlights and a whole lot more, you can access products from Damsel through my website by going to cynthiajolacourcom resources. That's where I've highlighted a few of the products that I really appreciate and that I think are a great value. So check those out if you're interested. And if you want to look through the whole Damsel catalog, you can click through from my website to my Damsel Pro site where you can find all their other products, including books and other materials that you can use to work with your children to begin their journey of knowing how to keep themselves safe. Remember, you don't have to be a damsel in distress. You can protect yourself and you can get some help in doing that through damsel in defense. So what you're saying makes a ton of sense to me in terms of the physical realm. Can you Mm -hmm. speak a little bit to how you do or don't address all the pre-fight aspects, the pre-incident aspects in both of those different environments. So as opposed to all the physical skills, the mental, emotional, Mm -hmm. psychological part, can you kind of walk out a little bit how that's different in the martial art world versus in the self-defense world? Absolutely. So unfortunately, I think a lot of society sees self-defense as a situational thing, which is by default, kind of another major difference between self-defense and martial arts being self-defense is the kind of thing that we teach young girls and women. Um, when you're going out, make sure you use the buddy system. Make sure you text your friends to find out if they got home safely. Make sure you walk your friend to the car. Make sure, you know, general awareness like that being the precursor to any physical self-defense you might need to use. Whereas martial arts is not a situational thing. It is a lifestyle. And that is something that is 100% embedded in me at all times. And all of my close friends and family and my partner has had to learn that (laughs) and adapt to that. And if I go out to eat, even if I sit at a restaurant, I have to sit in the corner where I can see all exits. I, you know, anytime I walk into a new environment, I automatically start summing up weapons that could be used against me. I read body language completely differently than I do if I was just, you know, a normal person walking through life. And so to me, those are two pretty big differences. The martial artist in me is never off. I'm always in ready stance. My knees are always unlocked and slightly bent, which is just a relaxed form of fighting stance. The self-defense advocate in me is, you know, 
nobody's above that level. The self-defense advocate in me still texts my friends when I get home if I'm on a date or something like that. And I think it's really important that people respect both as valuable traits to learn. Um, You know, like even though I'm a trained martial artist, I still really, really, you know, take such value in making sure that I check in on my girlfriends and they check in on me or I don't walk by myself. And that, again, is general awareness as a self-defense advocate, not so much as a martial artist, because as a martial artist in my head, I'm like, I know how to take care of myself. I know how to handle myself. I'm fine. But the self-defense advocate in me is like, don't walk alone. That's stupid. Don't, you know, uh, leave your phone somewhere where you can't get to it. Um, And so I think it's really just kind of having that general awareness and trusting your intuition and your gut in both mindsets. That's a great answer. And I think what it illuminates is that the martial arts tradition that you have grown up in is a pretty damn special one. Because honestly, from most martial artists that I speak to, and I'm saying this having spent more than 20 years being a martial artist, like that kind of awareness beyond just the technical, physical realm is not something that is commonly found in the martial arts world. So I think totally. you grew up in a really special martial arts environment. I, I, I totally agree. I'm, I feel very, very lucky and fortunate to have found the sensei that I have. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things where a lot of people don't make it past green belt, which is halfway because they're unsatisfied with their progress or they're frustrated that they haven't been promoted to black belt in less than 10 years or they're whatever it is you know it's not like you get pat on the back for every little thing that you do but for me it's like holy cow I'm so lucky to have somebody who's so dedicated to the art and to our practice and to his students and that's something that I I don't ever take for granted yes and it sounds as though mindset is a large part of what is included in what you learn. Absolutely. This seems like a good time for me to ask you to tell the origin story of Fight Like a Girl. Oh my gosh, that's great. Um, So Josh, my co-founder and sensei, um, had been trying to do kind of a sister wing to the academy, a women's self-defense club for years. But he is a pretty intimidating, very big guy and is not the most socially comfortable person. He's very reserved and can come off as um, kind of unapproachable. (laughs) Um, So he wasn't having very much success in providing self-defense to the community because, you know, he doesn't he doesn't really appeal to girls and women. if, If that I'm trying to say it as gently as possible. Um, and for years, I mean, it's kind of insane for years after I started training with him and, you know, people saw my progress over the years and I started competing and, um, taking my martial arts career very seriously. And, um, I was training, you know, like four or five hours a day, six days a week. And people would constantly reach out to me and ask if I would teach them one-on-one self-defense and I was 
totally honored and, you know, was like, this is really awesome, but I, I don't do that. And I don't feel comfortable doing that. And I'm not certified to do that. And, um, you know, here's my sensei's contact information. He tries to do this once a month and then they would not reach out to him. And it was just this thing that kept happening for years. And it was just like, my inbox was filling up and I would just forward them to Josh all the time until one day he was like, Sally Rose, how are you not seeing that the universe is trying to scream at you that girls and women need you? And it just, it was one of those things where it was like, he was like, for years, people have been coming to you. They see you as somebody that they trust to learn from. And it just hit me like a ton of bricks. It, you know, there was always an excuse not to do it. I didn't feel qualified. I didn't feel um, like I had the time to commit to it. And I don't like to half-ass anything. So for me, it was like, if I'm doing this, I'm all in. And that was it. Um, there was a, a girl uh, who went missing in our hometown. And she was missing for a very long time, over a year. And by the time they finally found her body, they discovered that, you know, it all happened very, very close to home. And it was really upsetting for our hometown. And that was pretty much the catalyst to fight like a girl club. It was like, you know what, this is without a doubt the most important thing that our community is missing and something that needs to be provided. And so I started writing the program and Josh and I would flesh it out together and we did our first workshop three years ago in January, I believe. And it's been nonstop since. That is an absolutely amazing story. And I love that Josh pointed out to you that the universe was clamoring at your doorstep. (laughs) (laughs) And yet I can also, I can also relate to that feeling of, you know, well, who am I to do this? I'm, I don't have a qualification or a certification and, you know, I'm, I'm not a big dog. And yet mm-hmm. that's exactly why this was a perfect thing for you. This is great. Yeah. Yeah, it really was. And I mean, it's, it's so amazing to have, I, I'm really, am so lucky to have a team, my, my two assistant instructors, we couldn't get them out to Vegas because we didn't have the funds. I wish, I wish you could have met them, but maybe you'll get to meet them someday. Um, They're absolutely amazing. You know, Josh is absolutely amazing. My, I feel like my, I'm so lucky to have a team that really, really is there and I couldn't do it without them. And, you know, we, we all work together so well and it's, it's just become so unbelievably abundantly apparent how important it is and, I mean, I just sitting here talking about it, I'm getting emotional. It's like every single workshop, there's some point, some tiny moment in every single workshop where some woman has a breakthrough or some little girl, you know, nine years old learns how to throw Josh, who's 225 pounds over their shoulder or some moment where a, a daughter is watching her mom learn how to throw somebody. It, it's just like, absolutely knocks me on my ass and I'm like you know what all those years that I was making excuses like to not be doing this it's like 
feels like time that I lost and I want to do everything in my power to make it up and to reach out to as many girls and women as possible. Wonderful. Can you talk a little bit about what makes the Fight Like a Girl community so special? Because I think that your focus on intersectionality and on women of all flavors is unique. And I would love to hear more about that. Oh, that's so great. So I think something that's really, really special about Fight Like a Girl Club is, you know, I I went to a few self-defense seminars with my mom and my sister when we were younger, and they were great. They were super fun, super empowering. They made us feel uncomfortable at times, and we had to work through that, which is, again, like we talked about earlier, so valuable. But most of what they had us do was purely physical self-defense, and, you know, we were fighting these cops and fully padded gear with helmets on and it was just kind of intimidating and it just was all kick them in the groin, kick them in the groin, kick them in the groin. And again, it was like no discussion of verbal defense, how to set boundaries, no talking points about changing the culture or society around rape culture and how, you know, every day that we just tell girls not to set those boundaries or express discomfort is perpetuating that culture, I think is, is really, really important. And so part of our mission is to lay out different levels of aggression. So the first level is all about verbal self-defense. And that is, is just something that is so important to me because you know, like as a musician and a performer, I play on stage and I'll play in front of crowds and there'll be people who feel like they know me better than I know them and they know my name and they might know a lot about me from social media, but we don't actually really know each other. I might not even know their first name. And then they'll come up to me at the merch table and they'll put their hand on my body as if that's just something that they're entitled to do. We've all experienced it and we just put up with it all the time. And something that we tackle in our middle level of aggression being overly aggressive is learning how to block no matter what. So even if somebody is just touching the small of your back, you can block really hard and then come down soft and say, oh, I'm sorry, I don't like to be touched like that. Because the biggest thing that we're, we fear as women is, is being considered a bitch or being considered you know, a prude or being considered, you know, like irrational or crazy, like overreacting. And to me, it's like, there's so much room for improvement there where we can block hard, set the boundaries, and then come down and be ourselves again. And so levels of aggression is is something that we really, really emphasize and focus on a lot. And the other main thing that I think makes Fight Like a Girl special is that we really, truly try to make it accessible to everyone. We're donations-based, which means, you know, it's free to anybody. So money shouldn't be an issue. We travel. So if somebody doesn't have means of transportation and they want to learn self-defense, we say, great, where are you? We'll come to you and we'll make a workshop in your hometown and we'll make sure that you have a ride there. You know, we're open to everyone regardless of age or gender or identity or class as long as people are there with good intentions of learning and empowering others. So 
boys are welcome, dads are welcome, trans folks are welcome. The whole point in the name is purely redefining what it means to fight like a girl. It doesn't mean that our workshops are just for girls and women. So for me, what makes Fight Like a Girl Club special is that we really, really are trying to be all inclusive as long as people are there with the intention of learning and empowering others. And that we are trying to redefine what it means to fight like a girl, redefine the societal norms and actually make cultural change in saying it's okay to set those boundaries before it becomes dangerous. That's so powerful. You embody that, number one, as as a human being. Everything that you just spoke to, you just embody. And that's probably Whoa. why, you know, when we when you came up and introduced yourself in Las Vegas and we started to talk, I think that was what just lit me up about being around you was that you have this openness and this willingness to engage and also this passion for really changing the world. Oh, my gosh. Right back at you. Yeah. Seriously, I mean, I, I remember that moment so vividly. I remember being there with my graphic designer, Renee, who's also one of my best friends, and walking into the room and being like, wow, this is, there, there is so much energy in this room. There's, there's, the, the, there's like a hive. It's like buzzing in here. And I saw you and I immediately, I was like, I need to go talk to Cynthia. I need to go introduce myself to her. I just walked straight to you. And it was, you know, instantly I was like, this woman and I have things we need to talk about. (laughs) Yes, we do. And so I've got some more questions for you right along. (laughs) along (laughs) I mean, this is my great opportunity to just ask you all the things that have been bubbling around that I've wanted to talk to you about (laughs) for months. So, So what are some of the top issues for the women that come to your classes and programs? Uh, Some of the things that affect their ability to feel or be safe? So without a doubt, um, the biggest biggest struggle that we are constantly working on and trying to improve upon, because, you know, at the end of the day, we're all volunteers and we're all martial artists, but we are not psychologists. And... You know, I think it's really important that we make that clear and are transparent about that. But in our bylaws with our team, something that we stress is that everyone must have the sensitivity and awareness that there is a very, very big chance that a pretty big percentage of our participants are survivors of some form of assault. And... We've had many situations where I I previously knew that before the workshop. It it could be somebody that I I know on a personal level, or it could be somebody that has reached out to me um, before the workshop and had expressed concerns about um, doing exercises that might be triggering for them. And, you know, we just, you know, reiterate time and time again, like, this is a safe space. If there's anything that you're uncomfortable with doing, you can say pass. Um, maybe the second time around the circle, you'll feel a little bit more comfortable doing it after seeing others do it. If you would like to do it one-on-one after the class is over, then we can do that. And also a lot of what we do is if someone seems on the fence about it, then we'll say, you know what, what would you feel more comfortable with me attacking you as opposed to Josh attacking you? So we try to give people as many opportunities 
to have that resource of learning and overcoming that trauma in a safe space as possible, because really that is the goal. We really want those women in particular to overcome that trauma and feel empowered enough to learn those techniques. And we've had really, really great success with that. It hasn't happened every time. There are instances where we've had some women who, you know, really there were, you know, there's, there's some attacks that we do that are really triggering, even for people who've never been assaulted before. Um, having somebody come up from behind and choke you and pick you up off your feet is an easy place to go straight into panic mode. And it's all the more important that we reiterate that we are creating a safe space and that we're all there to learn and empower each other and, you know, use that momentum to try and overcome. And every single individual is completely unique, right? So some women are empowered by giving time and space for them to have the control to say pass, pass, pass until finally they'll be like, you know what? I think I want to try it. But this time I want Sally Rose to attack me. Or, you know, the individual might be somebody who really needs that motivation. And, you know, we're, we're screaming, you got this girl, you go, you got this. And then as soon as they throw Josh on the mat, the entire room screams, yes, queen. And that is what they needed. And I think, again, it's just like using that awareness and that sensitivity to try and read someone as quickly as possible to limit the amount of pain or trauma that they might be experiencing and try to make them know that it's a safe space and that we're all here to learn and empower each other and they don't have to do anything they don't feel comfortable doing. That's wonderful. And I think that every self-defense program should be doing that. To me, that's just a fundamental thing. And it is born out of something really unfortunate, which is what you stated, that the odds that there are women in the in the group who have already experienced violence and assault are extremely high. I've found that mm-hmm. even with my teen classes, that there are young teens yeah. who are coming in with that life experience already. Absolutely. And it's heartbreaking. It, it, it's just another slap in the face that's like, this is so important and we need to be doing this as much as possible. It's, it's such a huge need in all communities. What are some of the most common misconceptions or false beliefs about personal safety and self-defense that you run into? I think the biggest one is that people, again, struggle with that middle level of aggression, not mildly aggressive, not dangerously aggressive, but that middle ground where people feel like they can't say, they feel like they can't block and speak up and create that space because they're so worried about how they're going to be perceived afterwards. And that is not the fault of women. That is the fault of our society and You know, everyone's either sick of hearing it or just now starting to say it, but it is the patriarchy, you know, shoving down our throats that it's not okay to set those boundaries. And at the end of the day, if someone has an issue with you saying, hey, I don't like to be touched like that or blocking and then going, oh, sorry, don't touch me like that. Anyway, what were you saying? If someone has an issue with that, that's not somebody that you need to worry about 
being in your life anymore. It's not somebody who you need to value their opinion of you anymore. They've already compromised their right to having any, any power over you or your personal space or your reputation. That is not a positive person in your life. So I think that that's like one of, one of the key things that we, <laughs> it's like constantly an aha moment for girls and women. They're like, oh, I can, I can just block really hard and then move on and not write that person off forever. I can give them the opportunity to apologize or to go, oh my gosh, I'm sorry, I didn't realize that made you uncomfortable or to not even address it and just never do it again. It's not so black and white. There's so much opportunity there to teach people, specifically men, personal boundaries without writing them off. Because again, a lot of times it's not their fault either. It's society's fault for teaching them that they are entitled to compromising our personal space. That's great. That's really powerful. And you're right that there's not a lot of discussion really in the self-defense world about how you can deal with somebody, set a boundary, and then have it be okay afterwards. Totally. And I mean... Because when first thing that people think of when they think of self-defense, they think of screaming now and kicking somebody in the groin, which obviously we go over. Super important, always fun. It's a crowd pleaser. But that is all based around the idea that most self-defense is there for when a stranger attacks you in an alley. It's the most common ideology of what self-defense is. But in reality, a lot of self-defense is needed in situations with people that aren't strangers, people that we are familiar with. Maybe it's coworkers. It might be a family friend. It might be somebody that's a colleague or somebody that a uh, you know, college student goes to class with. And it's not somebody that you necessarily want to write off or burn a bridge with completely, but it's somebody who constantly makes you feel uncomfortable. And learning how to set those boundaries with those people and give them the opportunity to fix it and learn from it is the biggest part of societal change that we try to focus on because that is the most difficult thing to learn. Mildly aggressive, you walk the other way. You don't deal with them. Dangerously aggressive, you break their neck. But the intermediate, the middle ground of self-defense is so little discussed. It's, it's, it's so rarely talked about and learning how to give Men and, you know, predators in general, not really predators because they're already going into the dangerously aggressive, but anybody who is putting you in a situation that makes you feel uncomfortable, who isn't necessarily someone that you want to write off, giving them the chance to learn from it and make it better. And then being a good example for other boys is huge. That is how we make societal change. Amen, sister. <laughs> Yeah, I'm just sitting here. I'm just like, yes, 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 yes. Love it. Absolutely love it. (laughs) (laughs) What are some of the must-know concepts, strategies, and tools that women need to have? Um, That's really great. I think a big thing is communication and learning how to stay calm learning how to deal with confrontation. 
So I think the more that we practice those elementary skills and the more that we practice using that language, even in, in mild aggressive situations, you know, if you're in a work meeting and there's a coworker who talks over you constantly, learning how to set those boundaries and put your hand up and say, excuse me, I was talking and finish what you were saying. That is where we really need to start the ground level of changing the game and changing the culture and showing that we are equals. And, you know, for me, what's so important about intersectional feminism is not saying, fuck you to all men and boys, because what do we gain from that? What do we learn from that? How do we build on that? It's saying, hey, I know that you guys are good guys and you want to get, get better and do better. And I know that you want to contribute to making society more equal and conducive and, um, you know, empowering for everybody. So let's give you the opportunity to learn from that. I think that that building that sense of giving everyone the chance to learn more instead of throwing shame constantly. Um, even when we talk about survivors, calling them survivors instead of victims, small steps like that are, are really important, I think. Mm, thank you. Those are all really great things to be aware of. And I like that approach. It's a very positive approach. And I think you're right that that is the way that things are going to change. It's not by ranting, raving and othering or turning into enemies. Right. Polarizing, which as our political current state, we can tell does not work. <laughs> <laughs> tell me about your collaboration with the Girl Scouts. Oh, my gosh. Um, it's just about the cutest thing in the whole world. Uh, we've had, we've had several troops reach out to us and this was all, you know, like in the first year of the nonprofit starting up. And it was, again, it was that thing where I didn't feel confident enough. And I, I knew that I would have to rewrite an entirely whole new program for little based on making physical self-defense techniques work for people that small, but also making the language appropriate, making it content appropriate, saying things in a way that would make sense to kids. So it's been a lot of work and it is a huge labor of love, but we have finally written an introductory level program for Girl Scouts that is going really, really well. And so we've just done two workshops so far for Girl Scouts, but um, a lot of troops have been reaching out to us and, um, it's really, really amazing to see, like you said earlier, having worked with teens sometimes is the hardest demographic to work with because they are under the fire for being in those situations that are uncomfortable. Whereas with littles, it's more likely that they haven't experienced that yet, but they're not entirely naive to it. And they are so gung-ho about it. I mean, these little girls, were so excited. The entire workshop, they were so excited to speak up, to scream and to hit and to punch and to throw and to set boundaries and work on all those exercises where often when we worked with teenagers and college age women, um, it's like they've had these real life experiences where they've been stripped of empowerment or confidence or security and they feel compromised. And with little girls, it's like they are just ready to take the world on because they aren't jaded by that. 
So that's been a really exciting program to work on. That's great. I love that you're doing all of that work. And I, I've had two daughters, you know, I have two sons, two daughters, and I do remember being extremely concerned about the loss of that sense of mm-hmm. power that little girls start out with. And right. um, I think that the work that you're doing is really going to help those girls remain tapped into that and maybe not let things have such a debilitating effect on them as usually happens with girls as they're growing up. Because it seems around 11 or 12 is where Mm -hmm. all of that pressure and change occurs. Totally, totally. And in full transparency, we did, um, I'm probably not going to get the order right, but I think it's Daisies, Juniors, Brownies. We did all the younger programs. And I had to fight tooth and nail with Josh, but for the cadets and scouts and um, ambassadors, we did the women's program. And he was like, these are young girls. I feel like this content is going to be difficult. And I was like, look, I was an 11 and 12 year old girl and I was not naive to the stuff that we work on. And I hate to admit that, but that's just the way it is. These young girls have been faced with realities that women are faced with. Yeah, and at a younger and younger age, too. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to just take a little tangent here and ask you about your bands and about the upcoming album. And then I want to know, what is the difference between stepping on stage to perform with one of your bands and entering the ring to fight or compete? Absolutely. So Shag Wolf is the the psychedelic stoner glam punk rock band. And that is the band that's coming out with the new album, March 13th. And that band is, you know, started as a side project and has taken off in the last five and a half years in a way that was much bigger than I ever thought it would be. Um, the thing that I love so much about Chagloff is not only is the music really fun to play, but we are really active in our active in our activism, and we use our voice on stage all the time at every show. We're very clear about creating safe spaces, and if anybody's feeling unsafe, they throw me the high sign, and we have kicked people out of shows before who were being drunk or inappropriate or touchy or grabby, and so it's kind of amazing how my music career and my martial arts career and my self-defense career have all kind of influenced each other because all of that transcends into my music, what I write about, my experiences being a woman in the music industry and the struggles that I face with that. And also constantly trying to, again, change that culture as a woman in the music industry. The Sally Rose band is totally different because that's more about my roots and my upbringing and you know, the songs are folk music more that are written about where I grew up and, and the mountains and being a country girl. And so it's kind of a, a really drastic difference between the two bands. Um, but they both serve different parts of me and my, you know, who I am as a person and 
it's just been, it's been really interesting to see how, how Fight Like a Girl has influenced Shag Wolf and vice versa. The whole reason that we are called Fight Like a Girl and why it's spelled the way G-R-R-R-L is spelled is as an homage to the Riot Girl movement, which is where Shag Wolf was birthed from. I wanted to be in a punk rock band that was, you know, writing songs about um, social issues and was speaking up for women. And so those, those two things go hand in hand. That's great. I love that you've, again, you've got like these multiple facets and, and the difference between the punk rock world and the folk music world both being different aspects of you. I just, I love that. And I've seen some of your pictures of you on stage with Shag Wolf. And I was like, holy cow, this woman is badass. <laughs> I would love to come to one of the shows. I don't know if you ever tour yes. out this direction, but uh, I would love to come. One day, absolutely, yes. <laughs> so can you speak a little bit to what it's like to step on stage to perform versus what it's like to uh, get in the ring to either spar or fight? Totally. So those are um, kind of three very different things. Performing as a musician, I rarely, rarely ever get nervous anymore. It's, you know, it's been like 16 years, 17 years of me performing. And it is such a comfortable place because for me, it's it's really... Um, it's cheaper than therapy and it's cheaper, you know, it's, it's cheaper than therapy and it's more rewarding than writing in a diary. It's, it's really getting to share myself in the most intimate way um, with people. That is something that rejuvenates me in a way like nothing else. And getting to see people with their eyes closed, sweating and dancing to my music is like, such a such an amazing experience um getting to see people feel empowered by that and feel good in their skin and feel good and i just that is like one of my favorite things in the world that's why i love music so much it's something that we share and it's something that all cultures do and it's a way of communication and it's a way of empathizing with each other it's a way of connecting um and so i think that's you know always been second nature to me competing on the other hand is uh the total opposite it's like i'm in front of you know hundreds of people and i'm being judged and critiqued and i am also putting myself at physical stake it makes me so uncomfortable it makes my stomach bubble up it makes my palms sweat i, I feel anxious and crazy but it is you know, like we were talking about earlier, so rewarding and important to learn how to navigate those signals and those red flags and how to endure it and find that comfort and push through it. Um, and then with uh, sparring, you know, like in the academy or any time that I've been attacked in real life even, is much more similar to performing musically because that is something that I've trained and trained and trained time again and has become muscle memory. And it's like a switch that flips on where I of course have adrenaline, but it's not so much about nerves. It's like, it is fucking go time. 
so it's really interesting how different those three things are, but I would say sparring and real life attacks are much more similar to my music performance because it's so deeply embedded in who I am. Um, and I, of course, can always grow and improve and, and learn to be better at those things, but they feel natural to me. The competitions, the, I don't think that'll ever feel natural to me. <laughs> it's like the weirdest thing that I do in my life. But again, it's, you know, I learn from it every time. So. Yeah, I think that distinction about when you're competing, there are other people who are sitting in judgment and critiquing. And mm -hmm. there may be people who come to your concerts who get a little bit judgy, but that's not really why they're there. They're there to have fun. Right. And right. Exactly. in the other situations, in a life or death situation, or just sparring in the school, there's also no element of, of critiquing and judgment. It's just doing. It's just doing. Absolutely. That is the best answer. <laughs> you just answered it perfectly. It's just doing. It's just reacting. It's just being myself and just doing. And that is, you just nailed it on the head. Cool. Well, I have one more question for you and um, then we'll wrap it up. All right. So how do you think that women can develop their own personal power and courage? Oh, that's a wonderful question. This is, I'm just having the best time. I really, 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 really think that women can find their greatest power and strength in building each other up. To me, there's been no more rewarding feeling than when I empower other girls and women, and that builds me up more than anything. And I think that the more that we do that for each other, the more as an entire society you know, we all improve and grow and learn and become more compassionate towards each other. Can you speak a little bit to how women can support each other? Absolutely. Um, I think reaching out, listening, connectivity, empathizing, finding common ground with people who you see as somebody who's really, really different from you, we're all similar in some way. And I think with the way that society is and culture is and, you know, like the fashion industry and um, the image that women think that their bodies need to be and, you know, gender roles, there's a lot of confusing information out there that makes us feel pitted and makes us feel like we are constantly comparing ourselves to other women. And I, I really, really think that if we try our hardest, and it's so much harder said than done, but it really is when you feel that exchange of seeing eye to eye and not seeing other women as your competition, but seeing them as your sister is the most powerful learning moment that we can experience as women and girls and passing that down to younger generations that when we are stronger together, we are stronger as a whole. And instead of breaking each other down, if we build each other up, that is how we become our best selves. That's beautiful. I love that. And I'm totally on board with that entire concept, as you know. I do know. 
That's your, that's everything you do. Absolutely. Yeah. But you articulated that really, really well. And I think that the aspect of teaching the next generations, really what it means. I mean, it's one thing to say like girls should build each other up and girls should support each other, but it's a completely different thing to show them how and to be a role model for that and also to teach them like, well, this is how you can do it. So yeah, I love that you brought that up. That's great. Well, before we wrap it up, I would like for you to share how people can connect with you because I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people who want to follow up and want to follow you on social media and hear more from you. So can you share how people can get in touch with you? Absolutely. Um, So my name is Sally Rose Monis. You can find our website for the nonprofit at fightlikeagirl.org, which is G-R-R-R-L, three R's, no I. Same email address, fightlikeagirlclub at gmail.com. We're on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, We are super active on social media. If you're interested in finding my band, uh, Shagwoof is S-H-A-G-W-U-F. We're on the web. We've got Facebook and Instagram as well. And then my other band, the Sally Rose Band, super easy to find. My one band, Shagwoof, right now is doing a Kickstarter to raise funds for our first ever vinyl that we're pressing, um, which is really exciting for me. <laughs> I've put out probably eight albums, but I've never released uh, vinyl before. So that's all over our website as well. And you can just find me on Facebook and reach out to me in, in, a, in a more personal way too. That's great. And I will put all of your links and things in the show notes so people can find you easily. Thank you so much, Cynthia. Well, thank you, Sally Rose. This has been just fabulous. I am so excited that we finally managed to connect and have this conversation. And I am definitely going to have you back on again because there's even more that we can talk about. (laughs) Absolutely. My face hurts from smiling. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this has been just great. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This is the Born to be a Badass podcast. Stay safe and be a badass. You've been listening to the Born to be a Badass podcast. Be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss a single episode and be sure to share it with your friends. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and a review. Tune in regularly for more exciting insights and wisdom on women, violence, and safety. And until next time, embrace your inner badass.